you guys doing tonight? Excellent. All right, I know we've prayed, but we're going to pray again because I need to. I need more prayer. Heavenly Father, in the most excellent name of Jesus, we ask that you come and move in this place tonight. We are crying out tonight for transformation. Lord God, we surrender ourselves to you and we say, Holy Spirit of the living God, come and fill us now. We are desperate. We're thirsty, Lord God. And we ask you that you pour living water out on us tonight. My Father, we need you. And that's not a casual declaration. That's a desperate cry. We need you. So would you come, Lord, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Would you empower us? Would you equip us? Would you cause us, Father, to be vessels of honor for the glory of the name of Jesus? Let everything we say and do in this place tonight build your kingdom and bring honor to the name of Jesus. For it is in his excellent name that we pray. Amen. Well, you guys know that I'm speaking on the book of Job. So if you came back again for another round of it, I, I have no apologies. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Job chapter 1. And as I've said before, um, I'll be speaking at different times throughout the year, um, Lord willing, and I'm privileged enough to be asked. Every time I speak, as long as the Lord allows, I'll be speaking from the book of Job. So this will not be the last night. Job chapter 1, I'm going to start with verse 13, and I'm going to go all the way through chapter 2 through verse 10. Now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking in the eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 2 verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him 
to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. A German theologian by the name of Dorothea Sole, in her book, brilliantly titled Suffering, On Suffering, said that in order for suffering to be legitimized, because she wanted to address theologically the issue of suffering, and she did not want to deal with minor, minor issues like hangnails and a car that wouldn't start or a casserole that was burned. She did not want to call those things suffering. She wanted to give some qualifications for what suffering would look like from a theological context. And I think she accurately drew from the book of Job and said that three criteria need to be met in order for suffering to be theologically legitimized. She said, first, it has to have a physical component. There must be some element to where physical pain or physical distress, the word is angst, but that's a little too elevated for me. You have to hurt physically. Then there has to be emotional, mental pain. There has to be some element of grieving, some sense of loss, some sort of emotional distress. And finally, there needs to be spiritual distress. When a person is experiencing pain, distress, or discomfort, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, then that qualifies as suffering with biblical proportions. Now, I don't want to find out what that's like, but let's face it. In this life, we will suffer. Not because we've done anything wrong. Not because we didn't say or didn't do the right thing. Because in this life, we will have tribulation. And tribulation by its very nature means that you suffer. Peter even said, you may suffer for a little while. So suffering is very much a part of the Christian context. It has actually only been in about the last 50 years that the idea of suffering has been removed from Christianity at large and placed in some other context. It's only been in about the last 50 years that we've propagated theological ideas that says things like if you have enough faith, and you make the right confessions. If you do the right thing and say the right thing, then you can avoid and bypass suffering. I don't care how good you are. I don't care what kind of confession you make. At some point, if you are breathing in and breathing out, you will know suffering. Now, the question is not whether you're going to suffer or not, because you are at some level. We all are. The question is, when those moments come to you, what will be your response to it? 
And that is one of the areas that I think the church has failed miserably in the last 50 years is to prepare people to deal with the adversities, the pains, the stresses, the disappointments of life and to do so in a way that honors God and brings glory to the name of Jesus. Verse 13, when you read that, chapter 1, verse 13, on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Think about this. In verse 13, Job knew where his children were, he knew who they were with, and he knew what they were doing. In so many ways, this is the desire of every parent. They want to know where, who, and what with regard to their children. And all of his children are together. This man has made his children as safe as he possibly could. He's done everything. Remember we read earlier in chapter 1 last week that Job even made sacrifices for his children just in case. They had said or done something that would have violated the Lord. And so he's very careful to cover and to protect and to parent his children. So he knows where they are, he knows what they are doing, and he knows who they are with. This sets you up because this makes you feel almost safe and comfortable. Do you know that you can do everything in your power to protect the people that you love and bad things can still happen? Some of you need to get over the guilt and the shame for things that have happened because you think that if you'd done one more thing, if you could change one thing, everything would have changed. The truth of the matter is there is no way to troubleshoot for every event that's going to happen. So some of you just need to let yourself off the hook and realize that things happen and it's not your fault. And you need to just breathe and let it go. Job's done everything that he could to protect his family. And that begins our um, story in verse 13. The first thing that happens is that the Sabaeans come and they attack. And they take his, his oxen and his donkeys and they kill his servant. And the servant, one servant escapes and comes to Job and says, Only I have escaped and the sole purpose that I've been able to escape is so that I can tell you what's happened. Then, before that man is finished speaking, another servant comes running and says, Fire has fallen from heaven and it's destroyed your sheep and your servants. Only I have escaped to tell you. And before that man can finish his sentence, Another servant comes up to him and says, The Chaldeans, they formed three lines. And they came and they took the camels. And they killed your servants. And only I have escaped. The idea is that these things are happening with such rapid fire secession that Job doesn't really have a time to react to any of them. Before one person can finish telling him what's happened, another servant's running to tell him an even more terrible story. I wonder what Job was thinking. Okay, everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong. Surely there is nothing else. And here comes another servant. You've lost everything. I wonder if after he'd heard about the sheep and the servants that third time, if Job thought, there isn't anything else that I could lose. And then here comes yet another servant who says, a great wind came from across the wilderness and it destroyed the house in which your children were eating and drinking and everyone's dead, and only I have escaped to tell you. I wonder if the first persons 
that suffered in this narrative aren't the ones that survived. Can you imagine being the one that had to bring that kind of news to someone? I know of no one, no doctor, no police officer, no fireman, no military person. I know of no one who enjoys knocking on the door or making that phone call because you know that the next words out of your mouth are going to change that person's life forever and they will never be the same again. I would not want to be that person. I would almost pray that I had not escaped so that I did not have to be the one. Sometimes we have to be the one, though. Whether it's news like that or whether we have to tell someone, your daughter's pregnant and she's not married, your son's addicted to drugs, your husband has not been faithful to you. You don't want to be the one to bring that news, but there are times when God calls us to rise up and to be there for that person. But I tell you, if you ever have to be the one to bring the news, do it prayerfully. Do it with tears streaming down your face. Do it with an attitude of prayer. Say to that person, this has happened. Let's pray. Know that I am with you and you are not alone. I am just going to be with you. But Job didn't have that. These servants came. No one has escaped. No one has escaped. No one has escaped. Only I have lived to tell you what's happened. And this is Job's response. I mean, think about it. One report after another, each worse than the one before, until finally the worst thing that any parent could possibly hear, he has heard. My friend Lori has one child. And I remember when he was growing up, she would say, I don't have any spares. This one's the only one I've got. But anyone who has multiple children, it doesn't matter how many you have, the loss of any child is tragic and devastating. Job has lost the most precious things in his life. And this is how he responds. This is, this is incredible to me. It says he arose. Let's just stop there and think about that. When you hear that kind of devastating news, it would absolutely take the life right out of you. If someone were bringing me that kind of news, I would need to sit down and then I would have to lay down and then I might just stay there for the next 50 years because I would be so overwhelmed with the grief. It says Job got up. Do you know that life will try to knock you down? Things will happen in your life. And God will require not that you sit there. God will require that you get up. Hagar is in a terrible situation in the book of Genesis. Sarah and Abraham have basically kicked her out of their camp. She has a teenage son. They have no food. They have no money. Abraham gave her a loaf of bread and a wineskin of water. But anyone who's ever been in the desert, that really won't last you more than 36 hours, if even then. She has no ability to protect herself and her son. She has no ability to protect herself or her son. She can't provide. She can't protect. And so finally they have gone so far into the desert that she's left her son Ishmael in some bushes and she left him there to die and got far enough away from him so that she did not have to hear him as he made his last cries before he died. And she then sat down waiting for death herself. That's a bad situation. I would say the woman's suffering deeply and completely. 
the angel of the Lord shows up and says to her, this is King James, I love the King James, Hagar, what aileth thee? I mean, seriously. What do you mean, what aileth me? No food, no money, no way to provide. My son's dying and I'm going to die and I have no place to go. I mean, I would have had a litany of things. The angel of the Lord did not give her a chance to respond back before he says to her, he starts, Hagar, what aileth thee? Doesn't miss a beat and says, get up. Why in the world would you tell somebody that's been beaten and bloodied by life, has very little breath left within them, why in the world would you tell them to give, get up? I mean, wouldn't it seem more merciful to tell them, hey, I see you there, just keep breathing in and out for another minute. We're calling a council meeting in heaven to see if we can resolve your issue. No, the angel of the Lord says, get up. And it says when Hagar got up that her eyes were opened and she saw a well of water. I know that when grief hits us and we're overwhelmed with the, with the pain and the trauma of the losses that we've experienced and the breath and life have just knocked right out of us, the last thing that we want to do is get up. We want to curl up in a fetal position and hope that we don't wake up, not for a very long time. Have you ever laid down and closed your eyes and said, oh God, let me go to sleep and don't let me wake up until the pain's gone? That would be a very easy thing, but God doesn't let us do that. He causes us to walk through and to grow through the pain. Hagar gets up, her eyes are opened, and she sees the provision of the Lord. Some of you have allowed life to knock you down, and the very thing that you need for survival, the very thing that you need to give life back into you is within your reach, but you can't see it because you're so overwhelmed with your grief and with your pain. And the most kind, the most empathetic thing that anyone can say to you is get up. Because when you get up, you begin to see things that you couldn't see when you were down. And so I believe the Lord is speaking to some of you tonight and he's telling you, get up, get over yourself. Get up, stop wallowing in what you've lost. Stop grieving in the bad choices and decisions that you've made back there. Get up and walk different. Get up and be a new man or a new woman in Christ Jesus. Get up. Because when she got up and she saw the well of water, she was able to take water for herself, give water for her son, and God made a covenant with Ishmael on that day and took care of Hagar and Ishmael all the days of their life. Job got up. There is nothing that will move you from a place of complacency like pain. Has God ever used emotional or physical pain to move you? I think most adults that eventually come to church are brought into church because life got so bad, things got so stressful and so painful that they had to do something and they tried everything else, now they're going to try God. If it takes pain to move us into a deeper, more real and authentic relationship with Jesus, then yes, Lord. He got up. His pain, his loss, his trauma, his grief moved him, and he got up. The next thing that he did was that he tore his robe. What clothing he had, what covering he had, he ripped it 
In ancient Hebrew tradition and thought, the ripping of one's robes is an indication of deep grief and emotional pain. He's not denying his pain. He's not denying his grief. I love what Paul wrote. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, yes we do, but we don't grieve like people who have no hope. We grieve as a people that knows in whom they have believed and are persuaded that he is able to keep those things that we commit to him. We do not grieve as those individuals who really believe that this life is all that there is. I am heartbroken for people who really believe that this is all that there is. If this is all that there is, I am sorely disappointed. And I know you are too. But this is not all that there is. This is just the beginning. There's coming a day when we will step out of time and into eternity. And when we do that, those things which are crooked will be made straight. Those things that we have been denied in time will be granted to us in eternity. Those things that have broken us and wounded us and scarred us in time will be healed and perfected in eternity. Those who have diabetes in time, in eternity, there will be no diabetes. Those who have cancer in time, in eternity, they will be healed. Those whose bodies are experiencing the wear and tear of age, when you step into eternity, you will not need a knee replacement or a hip replacement or shoulder surgery or any of that other stuff. He's able and he's awesome and wonderful he tore his robes because he was grieving but we do not grieve as those who have no hope but we do grieve and I think it's a travesty that in the church we have forgotten that grieving is a part of our existence to grieve our losses but to grieve as those who have hope one of my favorite theologians, his name is Miroslav Wolf. Miroslav Wolf said, nothing is ever forever lost to those who believe in a God who resurrects. That's the hope of the believer that I lose things in time. I lose people that I love. I lose so much just through the process of aging and time. But there's coming a day when the one who resurrects and is known as the resurrection and the life, he comes and he restores and gives back to us those things that have been lost. My dad died 14 years ago. But I, do, I grieve, but I don't grieve as those who have no hope. I will see my dad again. And he will be whole when I see him. People that have gone on before me, they are not forever lost to me. He rips his garments. He grieves, just like we grieve. And then he shaved his head. By shaving his head, he indicated that he was under the authority of God and that he was a man humbled beneath the mighty hand of God. When you are suffering, it is a good thing to humble yourself before the Lord. I don't recommend a marine haircut or anything like that. But I do recommend it is a good thing in moments of intense suffering and grief that you humble yourself before the Lord. There is nothing wrong with saying, Father, I yield myself to you. I humble myself beneath your mighty hand and I ask that you have your way in me. That you do your work in and through my life. I humble myself. I am nothing and you are everything. 
I am small and you are great. He got up. He ripped his garments. He shaved his head. And then he says, then he fell to the ground. This time, he's not falling to the ground out of grief and sorrow. He's falling to the ground because he's going to worship. You know what? If you're going to hit the ground, worship's a good reason to do it. This time, he's not hitting the ground because of his losses. He's hitting the ground. He's prostrating himself before the Lord because he's acknowledging the greatness of God. He falls to the ground and he worships. And this is what he says. Naked, I came into the world and naked, I'll leave. Think about this. The man has the right perspective. I came into this world with nothing and when I leave this world, I will leave with nothing. That really sums it all up, doesn't it? All the material things that we fight and struggle over, all the issues that we waste our time and our energy on, naked I came and naked I'll leave. I came with nothing and I will leave with nothing. He had the right perspective. And then he said, the Lord gives, blessed be his name, and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. When the Lord gives... We can shout his praises. Father, thank you for the financial provision. Father, thank you for the healing. Father, thank you for the answered prayer. Thank you for the opportunities. Thank you for the job. Thank you for the car and the house and the bills being paid. Thank you, Lord. Bless your name. The Lord gives and we bless his name. But the Lord takes and the accusations come. Who do you think you are? Why did you do that? I wasn't trying, I haven't done anything that would cause you to do that. Why did you do that? And the accusations come and they stream of all the mornings for me to get a speeding ticket. Why did you have to choose this morning? Of all the days for my tire to go flat, why today? Of all the times for the kids to act up, why today? Of all the times for someone to get sick, why now? And we come streaming with the accusations. But listen to Job. The Lord gives. Blessed be his name. The Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. When God gives, he is king and Lord supreme. When God takes, he is still king and Lord supreme. He does not change. My bank account is no indication of the kingship of Jesus. My personal circumstances and situations do not indicate the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord when things go well, but he is still Lord when everything falls apart. He is Lord when 10,000 come through the door, and he is still Lord when 50 come through the door. He is Lord when a million dollars comes in, and he's Lord when 50 cents comes in. He is still Lord. The Lord gives. Blessed be his name. The Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. Church, when we can come to a place where we can bless him in plenty and bless him in lack and our relationship stays solid and firm and steady, then we will know that we have reached a place of maturity in Christ Jesus to where we cannot be shaken. When people do not get what they want, when things don't happen the way that they expect them to happen, their faith gets shaken. That's because their faith is in the wrong thing. If your faith is in stuff, stuff comes and stuff goes. And your faith will be up and down like an EKG. 
But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not moved. There's no shadow of turning in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when your faith is in him, it's steady on a solid rock. Far too long, our faith has been determined by our possessions. Our faith has been determined by whether we get what we want and things go according to our plans. But that's not real faith. Real faith is when Job says, the Lord gives and I'll bless his name. The Lord takes away and I will still bless his name. That's faith. If I've got $20 million sitting in the bank, I don't have to believe God for money because I've got it. But when I've got $20 in the bank and the bills equal out to a lot more than that, that's when faith is required. And God loves faith. He loves for his people to trust him and to lean on him. Pastor Dan so eloquently presented that to us on Sunday morning. Asa trusted the Lord and things went well for him. He didn't lean to his own understanding, didn't lean to his own ability, didn't lean on his military prowess and ability, but leaned on the Lord and God blessed him. And then when he had plenty, he leaned on his plenty and lost everything. Church, the biggest blessing that we could have is to be a people of faith that's able to say, I'll bless the Lord in the times of plenty, but I will bless his name just as much in times of lack because he is God whether I have or whether I lack. He is still Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. It says that in all this, the loss of cattle, the loss of servants, and the loss of children, in all of this, Job did not sin, and he did not blame God. Act 2, chapter 2. Here we go again. This is almost verbatim what we find in the first dialogue between Satan and God. The character traits of Job remain the same. He is an upright man. He is blameless. He fears God and turns away from evil. Those four outstanding characteristics are consistent into the second chapter of the book of Job. But something now has been added. God says of Job, and he holds fast to his integrity. This has been added to his list of character traits. What in the world does that mean he holds fast to his integrity? Well, let me break it down and give you a little bit of boring information first. That word, holds fast, in the Hebrew is in a hefil stem. A hefil has um, um, a progressive action or progressive tense, and it's a participle. And in Hebrew, a participle, in English, a participle has an ing ending. But in Hebrew, a participle is past, present, and future. For instance, in Psalm 23, verse 1, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's literally, that's a participle there for shepherd. It literally means God has shepherded me in the past. God is my shepherd right now, and there's no doubt about it. He will be my shepherd in the days to come. He was, he is, he will be. And so this is in a hefil participle. And so literally, it's saying here, if I give you a very wooden translation, his integrity, God is saying of Job, his integrity 
held together in the past, his integrity is holding fast right now, even though all he's gone through. And his integrity will hold together in the days to come. In other words, he's not falling apart. Job didn't come unglued. I mean, can you see the dialogue? Hey, Satan, have you, have you considered Job? He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil, and he holds it together. Even when everything else fall, fell apart, he held together. He didn't come unglued. He didn't decompose and become a puddle in the middle of any of this. He held it together. He held steady in the faith, and he stayed strong in that which he believed and that which he looked to for righteousness and the one he looked toward for righteousness. He held it together. His wealth is gone. His children are gone. His reputation is shaken. And now he has been struck from the sole of his feet to the top of his head with sores. And this great man who is the wisest and the wealthiest in the east, respected by people near and far, is sitting on an ash heap, scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery. That is a very difficult picture for any of us to see. He lost his wealth, lost his children, his reputation's been threatened, and now his health, his sense of personal well-being has been challenged and compromised. And still, this man just sits there scraping himself these sores. It's generally, it's generally believed that the book of Job was written to combat a very popular and a very ancient theological belief that simply said this, if a person suffers, it is because they have sinned. That suffering is always the direct consequence of sin. And the book of Job was written to correct that poor theology. If you go through especially the Old Testament, if you go through, suffering is caused by multiple factors. Sin does lead to suffering. If you sin, when you have to face the consequences of that sin, it will create and generate great pain, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Suffering can come about as the result of decisions that other people make. If you're a parent, you know that your children can make decisions that break your heart. Suffering can come about because of sin, because of decisions that other people make, but suffering can also come about because God wants growth in your life. There's nothing that moves us from complacency and just that, that sense of, I am so comfortable here, do not move me. Nothing will move you any faster than to be made uncomfortable. Suffering. And then there's a fourth category, suffering for reasons that we just do not know. And it's a mystery. But there's more than one reason. The next time you come across someone and they're suffering, do not automatically assume it's because they've done something wrong. It's don't just automatically assume it's because they've asked for it or they've made the wrong confession or prayed the wrong prayer. God doesn't get that hung up on details. We do, but he doesn't. So Job is suffering. In every facet, he's suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And his wife, who you would have think or thought, this woman should come and encourage him and go, Job, I love you. I'm going to sit here in the ash heap with you. And is, is there any place that you're itching that I can scratch? What can I do to help you? But this woman comes to him and she says, curse God and die. 
Are you still holding it together? Curse God and die. But before you judge Job's wife, let me just present some things to you. Job wasn't the only one that lost his wealth. That was her wealth too. Job wasn't the only one that lost servants. Those were her servants too. And he wasn't the only one that lost children. Those were her babies too. This woman has suffered equally with Job. And now as a wife, she has to sit there and watch her husband suffer. As a woman and as a wife, and my husband has gone through some extreme physical sufferings, there are times when I see him hurting and I would wish that it were me instead of him. And if you love your spouse or you love your child, you know what I'm talking about. It would be easier for you to bear the pain than it would be for you to watch them go through the suffering. And there's nothing you can do and you're helpless to make the pain go away. This woman had enough faith to say, if you curse God, I know you die. I mean, if you look at it from that perspective, but do not judge this woman too critically. She is broken, and she's lost everything that Job has lost. And obviously, she didn't have the same level of relationship with God that Job had. And so she did what most people do in the face of that kind of extreme suffering. She came apart. But Job is holding it together. So I thought I would love to someday write a paper on Job's wife and, and look at what happens in the life and the heart of someone that has to deal with a chronic, uh, with a pain, uh, with a family member that experiences chronic pain and just the toll that it takes on them. Because I tell you from what little experience I've had, when you have to live and love and work with someone who is in chronic pain, it takes a toll on you too. And the focus is on that person, and you tend to get ignored, and no one tends to realize just how much pain you're in in that situation. I thought I would really love to write a theological discourse that it's not just the person in pain, but their caregiver needs a little bit of attention too. But anyways, I'm sorry, I, I digress on that. In gen it's generally believed that if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. But Job has done nothing wrong. He's a good man. He walks in righteousness before the Lord, and yet here he is, he's suffering. He's lost everything. He's holding it together, but his wife is falling apart. To hold on to your integrity means that you stay together when everything else around you is falling apart. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David is experiencing one of the most traumatic moments of his life. He has for approximately 14 years been running from Saul, never knowing from one day to the next if Saul was going to finally find him and kill him. He hasn't been able to go home. He's been separated from his family. Saul has taken his wife Micah and given her to someone else. And it's just been a nightmare 14 years for David as he's run through the wilderness of Engedi, trying to stay away from Saul and stay alive. He has teamed himself up with the Philistines. This is crazy to me. The Philistines are the enemy, and yet David has formed an alliance with them and has become the armor bearer of one of the Philistines. Now the Philistines are about to go to battle against Israel, against Saul and his son Jonathan. And David's going to go to battle against his own people. That's how desperate he is. That's how 
far removed from the promise that he is. Do you know prolonged suffering can make you a little crazy? And cause you to lose sight of what God's doing in your life and the ultimate goal? So David finds himself in alliance with the Philistines and they're about to go to battle against Israel. They're, the Philistines operated on what's called a pentapolis. There were five capitals, and each of the capitals had a king, and these five kings would come together and go to war against the various nations. David had made an alliance with one of the five kings. And so David shows up for their battle and strategy meeting, and the other four kings said, we don't want him here. He killed Goliath. He's an enemy to the Philistines, and we do not trust him. He'll go to battle against the Israelites, and there he'll be reminded that he's an Israelite. Old alliances will be stirred back up, and he will turn on us in battle, and we'll be defeated. We can't trust him in battle. And David says, I will live with you. I will die with you. I will fight for you. I'll do whatever. And they finally agree David can't stay. So now David's been rejected by his own people. David's been rejected by the Philistines. And he goes back to his camp, and another enemy has come in and has taken the women and the children and all their possessions and taken them captive. And the men, his own men, his mighty men, are looking to stone him. I would say David's having a bad day. He's hurting and he's suffering. And now they're wanting to kill him. But it says in um, Samuel that David pulled himself together in the Lord. You'll find it in your translation, David strengthened himself in the Lord, but it's the same word that's, held, uh, that's used here for hold together or hold fast. David pulled himself together in the Lord. Church, there will be days when everything seems to fall apart on us. And it will be incumbent upon us to pull ourselves together in the strength of the Lord. To pull ourselves together in the presence of the Lord. There are places where it is appropriate for you to weep and to fall apart. But I tell you, in the middle of the battle is not that place. Pull yourself together in Jesus. Pull yourself together in the strength of the Lord and realize it's not you, it's him. And realize it's not your strength, it's his strength. David pulls himself together in the Lord. And I actually think it doesn't say, I don't have any history to back me up on this, but I really think Psalm 27 came out of this experience in David's life. Listen to this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In darkness, the way you pull yourself together is to remember that the Lord is your light. When you feel like that nothing can save you and nothing can help you, you pull yourself together by remembering that the Lord is your salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I'll not fear Saul. I'll not fear the Philistines. I will not even fear my own men because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, I will not fear what man can do to me. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that shall I seek. 
Listen to this. David is obviously, whether it's the situation I just described to you from Samuel or another situation, David is surrounded with danger. His enemies want to eat him for dinner. And sometimes David couldn't tell who was his friend and who was his enemy. And sometimes his enemies were sitting at his own table. But he said, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? Though the enemies encamp all around me, one thing have I desired. Now, what is the one thing that you would desire? He didn't desire a castle. He didn't desire money. He didn't desire a strong army. This is what David desired. This is pulling yourself together in the Lord. He says, one thing have I sought and one thing have I desired that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He said, I don't want to die before I go home to be with Jesus. I want to be his dwelling place right here, right now. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he is going to conceal me in his tabernacle. When all these things come against me, I'm going to hold together because he's hiding me. He's concealing me in the secret place of his presence. In that secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on the rock. He'll put me in a place where nobody can get to me. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, what I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me. Do you keep hearing this cry? Hold me together, Lord. Hold me together in your sanctuary. Hold me together when they encamp around me. Hold me together when my heart would betray me. For my father and my mother, they, forsake, they have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Even if your own family abandons you because they're through with you, because you've pushed them one time too many, even if your own family abandons you, the Lord will not. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Also in Psalm 31, verse 24, David says, Hold it together and let your heart take courage, all of you who hope in the Lord. And finally, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, and I close with this, it says simply this, The person without a vision, will perish. That's cool, but let me lay it on you from the Hebrew. The person that is unable to see beyond the moment in which they live will never be able to hold it together. Church, in our moment of suffering, we must be able not to stop grieving, not to ignore the fact that we are in pain, but we must have the ability, the hope and the faith to see beyond that moment and to know that the Lord is working something into or out of our lives because when we are able to look beyond the moment and see his hand in our lives, that's when we hold it together.
Because if we aren't able to do that, we will come unglued. Job, upright, blameless, feared God, did an about face when evil was in front of him, and he held it together when everything in his life fell apart. We can hold it together, not because of us. We can hold it together because of the one who holds us. Suffering comes. Suffering goes. Suffering comes again. It's a part of life. The only thing that holds steady in our life is the person of Jesus Christ. There's no shadow of turning in him the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord gives. Blessed be his name. The Lord takes. Blessed be his name. He holds me together. He holds me. Lord Jesus, our prayer tonight is simply this. Hold us together. Remind our hearts to take courage in you. Remind us, Lord God, to look beyond our moment and to see that you really are who you say you are. To be able to say, the Lord has given and I have blessed his name. Now the Lord has taken and I still bless his name. For any heart that's hurting tonight, I ask my father that the balm of Gilead be applied and that they know your comfort and that you would hold them together in this moment, that they might become that man, that woman, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Lord Jesus, hold us steady. Hold us steady in you. For it is in your excellent name that we pray. The name of Yeshua Amashiach. Amen.